Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. I'm Jordi, and with us today is Laura Bates. Laura is the founder of the Everyday Sexism Project, which aims to catalog instances of sexism experienced by individuals on a daily basis. She's a gender activist and spokeswoman for feminism who has presented at universities and schools and in the House of Lords. She has given TED Talks, and she writes for The Guardian, The Telegraph, and The New York Times. Laura is an award-winning writer, and some of her books include Fix the System, Not the Women, Men Who Hate Women, and Everyday Sexism. Today, we are going to be discussing her newest book, a feminist YA survival thriller titled No Accident, which comes out on December 6th of this year. I would like the listeners to know that parts of the discussion will involve toxic and abusive relationships, rape, and the trauma that surrounds these experiences. Laura, it's so amazing to have you on. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited for this and I've been looking forward to it. So tell us what No Accident is about and where did you get the inspiration for this book? Well, I didn't want to give too much away because it is a a kind of mystery thriller, but it's kind of a book that does two, I suppose, very different things. The inspiration behind it was that I spend a lot of my time in schools working with young people of different ages in the UK, but also globally. I felt passionately that the young women I was working with and speaking to were not only bombarded with sexism and sexual violence in their daily lives, but had a really heavy sense that there wasn't any justice available to them. And I think that there's a disconnect between this public perception that this is a generation of teenage girls who have never had it so good, who are outperforming boys, who are luckier than any women before them in history, and the reality of the experiences they're having. And that they are looking around at a world where they see very clearly that when they experience sexual violence, as sadly so many of them do, if they speak up about the perpetrator, he's likely to have huge public support if he's a promising fleet. They look at a world where a man who is accused by multiple women of various different allegations of sexual violence can go on to be voted the president of the United States where even if you speak out at enormous personal cost about your experience of sexual violence, you might see that your alleged perpetrator goes on to be voted onto the Supreme Court. There is this sense of powerful spaces controlled by powerful men and a real sense of impunity. And I've written for a long time nonfiction books about that impunity and about those systems. But my work with young people made me feel that this was a really pressing issue to tackle amongst younger people. And what I realized was that looking back, I wouldn't have been reading nonfiction books, particularly at that age. I wouldn't have known what the word feminism meant at that age, but I would have been devouring novels and particularly the exciting ones, suspense novels, thrillers. So I wondered if there was a way to access these issues and start a conversation about some of these ideas and perhaps to make young people who might be survivors themselves feel less alone, to question some of the kind of victim blaming in our society, but through the medium of fiction rather than non. And the story that developed was one where I wanted to find a way for young people themselves to really question the systems of justice in the world that we live in, to question complicity, the extent to which we as a society are complicit in the normalization of sexual violence and the excusing of sexual violence, not just the perpetrator. And I felt that the 
justice systems around us are so badly broken that there wasn't a way to explore that within the confines of our society. So I wanted to find a way to displace a group of teenagers, to put them in a scenario where they would have the opportunity and where they would have no choice, but to find their own ideas and to really examine their own ideas of justice. And that was where the idea came from. Uh, for a, a book that starts with a plane crash and a group of teenagers stranded on a desert island. And I wanted that sense of urgency and that sense of fighting for survival because I really believe that teenage girls do feel that they are fighting for survival at the moment. I wanted the plot and the kind of thriller element of the book to really mirror the urgency and the sense of danger and the issues that teenage girls are facing. That uh- makes so much sense because while I was reading this book, I was glad that these topics of violence against women and even what they're met with when they come forward were brought up. Because I know if I was exposed to some of these topics and discussions earlier on, it could have saved me and some of my friends a lot of issues. And so my first question is, not a lot of people know about domestic violence and abuse in teenage relationships. So what makes a young person susceptible to entering these relationships and why is it so difficult for people to get out of that? That's such a great question. The answer is so complex and varied. You're so right. When we talk about domestic abuse, I think the general public people tend to imagine immediately that we're talking about adult women in heterosexual relationships, particularly within marriages. The reality is that domestic abuse, of course, can affect folks of all genders, of all backgrounds of all different types of relationships, and especially that young people are particularly at risk, that it is actually something that particularly is likely to affect teenagers. And it's a particularly acute problem in that age group is that those young people are even less likely to recognize what's happening as abuse. So when I work with young people in schools, it's incredibly common to hear experiences that are absolutely experiences of abuse, of assault, of partner violence, but very rare to hear that terminology used to describe them. So it's the sense of it's banter, it's jokes, it's normal, he's her boyfriend, it's his job to control her, he has every right to be checking her phone or telling her who she can and can't talk to or controlling what she wears. It can't be rape if it's your boyfriend because a rapist is a stranger in a dark alleyway. There are these myths and misconceptions and this kind of really powerful normalization, particularly amongst young people, which comes from all around us. It comes from the press. It comes from headlines that men who've murdered their spouses as henpecked or nagged until they snapped. It comes from a world where we see, for example, here in the UK, one of our biggest and most respected radio programs asking whether Me Too was a witch hunt against men. It it comes from, you know, audio being released of somebody saying that they grabbed women by the pussy and then being voted into the White House. Against that backdrop, I think it's unsurprising that young people have become desensitized to intimate partner violence. Yeah, and that leads into my next question because there's a male character in the story whose actions within his romantic relationship are romanticized because it seems like the perfect doting boyfriend. However, the more we get to know this character, the more we realize, as it states in the book, his actions went from caring to controlling. So how did romanticizing these toxic behaviors become normalized? And how do 
we try to correct this narrative. They're behaviors that have been romanticized for a very long time, romanticizing them words for the patriarchy from the very earliest stories Little Red Riding Hood and its message that little girls shouldn't stray off the path shouldn't do what they're told not to do should behave perfectly or they risk desperate dangers the non-consensual nature of fairy tales like Sleeping Beauty it's a very well-trodden path for literary tropes and fiction tropes to reinforce patriarchal standards and keep women essentially in their place and I think serves those people who are in positions of power. It's happened for a long time. And I think particularly what's really a big problem in our society is the romanticization of toxic and coercive and controlling behavior. So trope, for example, within movies that a guy that just won't take no for an answer, that won't give up, that turns out outside your door and won't go away when you've told him no, that that's romantic, you know, that he just loves her. And it's really common amongst particular online forums and elements of perhaps extreme misogyny online to see guys kind of saying, you know, but she just doesn't know that she loves me. Or all women have a rape fantasy. I'm just playing into it. And there's a video that recently went viral of a guy walking into a police station in the US and talking about having obsessively stalked a woman, but really portraying it as something romantic that he'd done. So I think that we've seen that concept so widely portrayed in the media that it's really difficult to break that down. And the only way to do it is with really comprehensive, clear sex education. And that isn't something that's happening in the majority of schools. So there's a real gap there. If you're getting all your information about how to be in a relationship from movies, if you're getting all your information about what sex looks like from online pornography, then those misconceptions can spread very quickly and take hold. Yeah. Talking about what a healthy relationship looks like or how to have constructive conflict resolution isn't something you see often in relationships. And so that can be another area that's hard to work through, especially for younger people. That's one of the things that's really interested me about the reception to this book when it came out in the UK is that there tends to be a big focus on the kind of the other storyline of violence in the book. But this coercive and controlling relationship, which to me was very much of parallel importance, just tends to go almost unnoticed. Which makes you wonder if people reading it are reading it as a romantic relationship, if they're not picking up on it. And and that's really worrying as well. Yeah, because I think a lot of times, especially for people who haven't either witnessed or been in an abusive relationship, that's not physical. It's more the emotional and verbal abuse. It's hard to kind of imagine anything other than an abusive relationship just being someone who hits somebody or something of that nature. It's very difficult to spot the early signs or the warnings because I feel like sometimes there's such a fine line between this person just really cares about me and this person's actually trying to control everything that I'm doing. Absolutely. Especially if you're a teenage girl in a world that sends you the message over and over that getting that man, having a heterosexual relationship is this kind of pinnacle of achievement for you. So you're so pressured into wanting a boyfriend. And then there's this sense of you're so lucky to have him. You just put up with it. The message of the you're so lucky to have him or he seems so great. He's doing all of these things. That's an added pressure for someone trying to leave an abusive relationship. Nobody's going to believe me when I say, no, actually, he's so good in front of you. But then something happens and it could be as small as I said something that just irked him the wrong way or just nothing. And they can flip on a dime. Yeah. And externally, people are saying, oh, but he's such a nice guy. You know, you make such a cute couple. 
And of course, it plays into these societal misconceptions of why didn't she leave him? You know, if there isn't any violence, then how could she possibly be under his control? There is such a lack of public understanding just amongst adults, let alone teenagers, about the reality of these forms of violence and the enormous power that they can have. I hate when people say they were choosing to stay in the relationship. This person doesn't understand that you can't just sometimes leave. It's not that easy. They have so much control over you sometimes that I could be scary. Like, how are they going to retaliate against me? What are they going to do? Are they going to come after me? It could be like if you have kids, like you can't just leave. Financial interdependence. And very often in these situations, having had your self-confidence eroded for so long and so gradually and cleverly over such a long period of time that you don't trust yourself anymore. You don't know if you're overreacting, the kind of gaslighting where they've told you it's your fault. You're making me like this. I wouldn't have to be like this if you weren't behaving in the way that you do. It is so incredibly psychologically effective. And and that puts you in a very difficult position to leave as well because you don't quite trust yourself, your instinct. And very often, I think women have been reduced to a sense of feeling helpless, feeling so vulnerable, feeling that they aren't worth anything, that nobody else will ever want them. There are so many incredibly manipulative psychological aspects to it that really put you in a very vulnerable place that makes it so difficult to leave. Mm -hmm. Even when people find the strength to leave those situations, it takes years sometimes to unlearn everything that they eventually believed about themselves. It's very devastating. This book mentions several reasons why society doesn't believe victims when they come forward, and flashbacks and memories were prevalent throughout the book. When individuals go through any type of trauma, even when it comes to remembering details of any general memory, humans can sometimes be unreliable. What would you say to someone who doubts an individual's experience when it comes to rape? I would ask them to compare the response to what it might be if it was a victim or a survivor of a different kind of crime. Because sometimes that is the only way for us to recognize how completely twisted our responses are when it comes to sexual violence. If somebody had been robbed and their story changed a bit in the retelling, maybe uh, they thought the guy had brown eyes and then it was green or the, the time of day changed. I think most people would completely understand that in a situation of fear and high pressure and panic and shock, of course, details become blurry. And it would be extremely rare and seem very odd for someone to go, oh, maybe you weren't robbed at all. Or to say something like, well, you've given money to charity in the past, so I don't know, maybe you just gave your money away. It, that would seem completely absurd. So I think we have this attitude only with victims of sexual violence because we are so poised by anti-feminist myths and misinformation, already to doubt, to disbelieve, to have these myths in the back of our mind about ulterior motives, about lying women, about false allegations. And it's heartbreaking that those myths are so prevalent because we know the facts are so clear. We know that false rape allegations are vanishingly rare. We know that they are no more common than any other kind of crime. And these responses that we are so used to, so normalized, when you flip them to a different kind of crime, it seems so crazy. Imagine if somebody was in court after being the victim of arson and they found that lawyers had been through their social media posts and turned up that two years ago they went to a bonfire party and they're going, well, maybe you quite enjoyed seeing your house go up in flames. That would seem so bizarre. And yet that is quite literally what we do with victims of sexual violence, using their past sexual history against them. I would suggest that people question where the instinct is coming from and recognize that it probably says more about them than it does about the survivor. 
Yeah, and those comparisons and analogies go right into something that stayed with me after reading this book. In the book, there's an analogy made between being raped and being attacked by a shark. In both situations, you're faced with a fight, flight, or freeze scenario where you find yourself up against an entity that is stronger and more menacing than you. For this reason, you may not want to get on the offensive because that may be worse for you and you can't figure out how to get out of this horrible situation. And so the feeling of being powerless both during and after these scenarios is very palpable. What would your advice be to someone who has been abused or raped when they feel powerless and alone? It is so important to know how incredibly normal it is, a completely normal, natural, physiological response that we know that thousands of survivors experience, that it isn't out of the ordinary. It doesn't mean that you did anything wrong. It doesn't mean that you're to blame in any way, that you are not alone, that societal myths and misconceptions can make survivors feel guilty or to blame if they didn't respond in a particular way or because of some way that they did respond. And that is absolutely baseless. The only person to blame is the perpetrator. And I would really say to anyone listening who that might speak to, who might have any experience of this, that there is brilliant, confidential, non-judgmental support available. There are support and helplines out there. And I would really recommend reaching out because you will not be judged. You will be supported and you deserve help and support. Yeah. And I think it's very important to also mention again that if you find yourself in these situations, if you didn't explicitly say no or you didn't fight back in some sort of way, doesn't mean that you were consenting. Of course. And I mean, we've been discussing, haven't we, psychological coercive control. Our society has been very slow to catch up with the reality of the different forms that sexual violence can take, including the psychological toll and impact. It is absolutely the onus is on the person looking for consent to have clear consent. And for that to be enthusiastic, the absence of no is not consent. The absence of fighting is not consent. And we know this. We're just waiting for lawmakers and the general public to catch up. To switch gears a little bit, we saw in the book some of these characters, younger males, joking and being crude about a lot of very sensitive topics. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what toxic masculinity looks like in the teenage population. So I think the term toxic masculinity has become very maligned and misunderstood. I think it's been quite cleverly weaponized by anti-feminists online. And I think that a lot of people, when they hear it, they hear toxic masculinity and they think we're saying toxic men. It's really important to say that toxic masculinity really is a compassionate term to use about men. It isn't about saying that men themselves are toxic. It's saying that there is a form of socially, societally performed masculinity, a set of if you like, rule that men feel pressured to follow, that boys feel pressured to display, that is toxic to them as well as to women and to their female peers and to wider society. Ideas like boys don't cry, men are tough and manly, they're not vulnerable. The idea that boys have to perform a particularly potent, perhaps powerful, even violent, controlling masculinity in order to prove their maleness, that they have to score lad points with one another, often through the subjugation of women as a form of that performance. For example, swapping and sharing nude images of girls without their consent, swapping sexual banter and sexually violent jokes. 
we see all of that in the book. And this is not to say that boys are inherently misogynistic. It is not to attempt to vilify all boys. It is in part a kind of compassionate look at a world that is also bewildering and highly pressurized for boys as it is for girls. But it also shows how being complicit in that world in ways that I think a lot of boys would consider harmless can actually have a really significant impact. I wanted this book to speak to the teenage boys who would dismiss these conversations because they don't think they're relevant to them. I'm not a rapist, so I don't need to listen to this. But the reality is that if you are the party where people are swapping rape jokes and if you're standing around and laughing at them, you are part of creating an environment in which rape isn't taken seriously, in which potential perpetrators are emboldened by the knowledge that it's something that's seen as a joke, in which survivors get the message loud and clear that they won't be taken seriously. And that has an impact. It doesn't mean that they're the same thing. It doesn't mean that we're suggesting that people who laugh at and join in with rape jokes should be treated in the same way as rapists. Of course, it's more complex than that. But I really wanted to explore that sense of complicity and the impact that kind of peer environment has on survivors particularly. You also mentioned in the book how younger boys, young adult men and grown males don't understand what it is to live as a female because naturally they wouldn't, but they don't understand to such an extent that they don't even understand some of the fears and pressures that we live with, which like on the daily, we're constantly thinking about things that could be happening. So how important do you think it is to educate younger people on these issues? Hugely important because we have this bizarre situation at the moment where we are really almost living in separate worlds without realizing it. And one of the things that I really loved about the idea of these teenagers finding themselves on this deserted island was looking and playing with the idea that for the boys, this is one of the most terrifying situations they've ever been in. And for the girls, it is almost freeing because there is this sense that they can walk down the beach at two o'clock in the morning and know that they're safe, that there's nobody else there. When in reality, in the world that we live in, that is something that many women would find impossible or certainly something that they'd be really worried about. There is almost no woman I know who hasn't learned a set of incredibly restrictive rules from such a young age that we are never sat down and taught, but that we all know all the same. Walk home with your keys between your fingers in case you need a weapon. Don't wear your hair in a ponytail in case someone grabs it. Wear flat shoes in case you need to run. Don't wear a short skirt because you'll be accused of asking for it. Keep your drink covered in a club. Go to the bathroom in groups. Text each other when you get home safely. Take a cab home, but not the wrong kind of cab. There are a million different rules and safety mechanisms that we adopt on a daily basis because we live in a world in which we are not safe and in which we are taught so clearly from so young that the onus for our own safety is on ourselves, that this is a women's problem to fix. And I think that if we have those conversations with people from a really young age, if we recognize that this is an issue for folks of all genders, that this is something that is absolutely not a victim's responsibility to somehow avoid that doesn't make sense on a moral and emotional level, but even on a practical level, there is no magic trick that women can do to keep themselves safe from sexual violence. We know that the only thing that survivors have in common is that they came into contact with somebody determined to commit a crime against them. And if we had those conversations and encouraged a kind of empathetic and compassionate change of awareness, really, of the differences in the ways in which we're living and the experiences we're having from a much younger age, 
think that that would help to undermine some of those myths and misconceptions and some of that really misogynistic banter later on as well. Why as a society are we so quick to try and denounce survivors' testimonies? And do you think there will ever become a point where we will believe people first? I think that we denounce survivors' testimonies for a range of different reasons. Some people denounce them because they are genuinely extremely misogynistic and they really believe that women are liars and that women's major function is to provide sexual gratification for men. There are a much bigger group of people who don't want to believe them because acknowledging and recognizing the sheer scale of the epidemic of violence against women would be terrifying and destabilizing and it would be to acknowledge it as a public health epidemic, as a form of pandemic really that should be treated with the same structural and enormous solutions that we saw used against the COVID-19 pandemic and that's scary and it's daunting and it requires infrastructure and investment and disruption of our current systems, our justice system, our legal system, our policing systems, our political systems, our education systems and I can understand why that is a very difficult thing for people to want to do and why it is easier to suggest that women are lying or overreacting or getting the wrong end of the stick or making a fuss about nothing. But I think that it requires a recognition of the fact that millions of women are not speaking out for no reason or for malignant, malicious reasons. Millions of women are speaking out because one in three women on the planet will be raped or beaten in her lifetime. We are literally speaking out for our very survival. I have to hope, believe that there will come a time when we will believe survivors first, because if you don't have that hope, then it's very easy to fall into despair. And we have to hope because we have to keep fighting. I'm so inspired by the young women who inspired this book. There are so, so many thousands of girls I've met and worked with in the face of these daily experiences of harassment and abuse and violence remain so hopeful and courageous, are fighting back in a million different inventive ways. We only have to look at the wave of teenage activists, not only feminist activists, but anti-racist activists and climate change activists around the world to feel that there is hope for the future and that we have to believe that things can change. Do you think we're improving in this area? It's really complicated. I don't think anything is staying the same, but I think that things are actively moving both forwards and backwards at the same time in different areas. What has improved enormously has been the public conversation, particularly in the media and increasingly at kind of policy level. There is a recognition of sexual violence and of everyday sexism that simply wasn't there a decade ago. That is in part due to viral feminist activism, to things like Me Too, for example. There is a willingness to disclose and to talk about these stories. We absolutely owe such gratitude to women, not only activists like Tirana Burke, who spearheaded the movement, but to the millions of women and other survivors and non-binary survivors and trans women who have so bravely spoken out about their experiences, because without them, that conversation wouldn't have moved forward. The young women that we meet in schools are talking about feminism and starting feminist societies and so on. And when I was in school, that wasn't happening. So there's huge progress there. But I also think that we are seeing a wave of backlash, unlike any that I've seen in my lifetime. Anti-feminist, extremist movements, forms of extremist, misogynistic radicalization 
are really gathering pace and power online, aided and abetted by social media algorithms. It's like incels, the men's rights activists and pickup artists and men going their own way. And I think that they are having a really worrying, radicalizing impact on a generation of young men without people recognizing it as a form of extremism. That's a real threat. There's also a real threat from the populist forms of government that we're seeing taking an increasing hold in countries around the world and really a sense of impunity that comes from the very top. In the UK at the moment, 56 out of our 650 MPs are currently under investigation for sexual misconduct. So there is a real worry, I think, that things are certainly stalling, if not moving backwards in terms of political will to tackle the problem. So it's complicated, but I feel hopeful about the level of rage and the level of energy that there is to fight and to try and create change. Thank you so much for being on today and talking with us. This has been such a privilege to have you here. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great conversation. Yeah, I loved reading your book, so I'm excited for everyone else to get their hands on it. (laughs) Thank you. The greatest gift you can give this season is the gift of the bird. Flippin' the Bird is a clothing company bringing cleverness, wit, and a dash of curse words to people who need a good laugh. Flippin' the Bird is a small business in Minnesota that provides 14-day, no-shit, easy return policy, quality, earth-conscious products, and gives back through volunteer work and fundraising. After all, swearing is caring. For all your gift-giving needs, go right to flippinthebird.com, where Susie will get your bird flying in two to three days. When you don't have the words, your clothing should say it for you. Are you searching for bookish gifts this holiday season? At Flypaper Products, we are a team of passionate book lovers who are committed to providing you with useful and unique literary and grammar gifts for the writer and reader in your life. Browse our online shop to find everything from bookmarks, barware, uniquely scented book-inspired soy candles, witty grammar pencil sets, high-quality herbal and black tea with clever literary titles, ceramic mugs to tote bags, and more. Each and every one of our products are proudly designed in beautiful Ann Arbor, Michigan by book lovers and for book lovers. Let us help with your gift giving this holiday season and select one of our many curated box gift sets that are in stock and ready to ship or customize your own box. Our bookish gifts can be shipped to you or directly to the lucky recipient and make the perfect holiday gifts. We offer same-day order processing and shipping is always free for orders over $48. We are also happy to include a personalized gift note to complete the gift. Whether you're searching for the perfect present for the bibliophile in your life or looking to add to your own collection, our literary and grammar gifts for book lovers will put a smile on anyone's face. Use promo code HEROIN to get 25% off your first order and visit the website flypaperproducts.com today. That's code HEROIN to get 25% off, H-E-R-O-I-N-E, at the website flypaperproducts.com. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for brownie points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. 
Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. Well, Red Woman is a dangerous creature, creature.